In this episode, I am once again joined by Dr. Yanis Tasoulis, Sufi lineage holder, psychotherapist, and author of Sufism, The Way of Blame. Dr. Tasoulis takes a deep dive into the practice and history of Sufism, including its historical interactions with Buddhism, Vedantism, Zoroastrianism, and posits a Neoplatonic and Hellenic substructure underpinning Sufi mysticism. Dr. Tasoulis outlines the four phases of Sufism as a living practice, details its seven stages of wisdom, and explains the role of bliss and tranquility in Sufi contemplative practice. Dr. Tasoulis also discusses the crucial role of the teacher, the importance of the circle of fellow practitioners, the role of ethics and direct experience, and why Sufism must go beyond union with God as the ultimate end and true purpose of the path. So without further ado, Dr. Yanis Tasoulis. Dr. Yanis Tasoulis, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you again. In the last episode that we uh, released, we covered a great deal of your life and biography. And it ended up being quite an adventure all around the world and through many different traditions. And eventually taking Sufism as your main path. And so today we're going to talk about your book, Sufism and the Way of Blame, uh, Hidden Sources of a Sacred Psychology. And so my first question about the book is, how did you come to write the book? What was the intention behind this book? And can you talk a little bit about uh, the process of um, arriving at, beginning to write it, and also the research uh, process and so on? Well, I wrote the book uh, because it was a big hole for two reasons. There was a big hole in uh, the literature on the Melamia, except for the early stages of the Melamia, the early formation of the Melamia, which began in the ninth century in Khorasan, a province of Iran. So there was a, a big hole in how the Melamia continued to develop through what uh, the scholar uh, Abdullahi Golpanali called the three waves of the Melamia. Uh, the, the extant literature focused only on the first phase. So there were second and third phases. And the second and third phases took place after the formation of the Ottoman Empire. So there was that hole in the literature. So I thought it was a necessary book. The second reason was uh, in order to, uh, to, in a sense, pay back what I had been given by my teacher and by that lineage. So I felt that that would be a way of, of uh, showing my gratitude to the whole development of the lineage and how it played a part in my life. And we discussed um, in the last episode, we got into uh, the first half of the book, I suppose, a lot of history in there, but also you tackle some misconceptions about Sufism, or at least some different presentations of Sufism. You critique them and so on. There, there are three different basic streams of that that you critique. We discussed that in a great deal, deta a great deal of detail last time. Uh, Gurdjieff, etc. We, we looked into that. So perhaps we could say then, what is Sufism and what is the Malamai Malamaya? And I thought it was Malamati from reading the book. There are three different ways of using that term. Malamia in Arabic, which means the way of blame, malamatia, also the same, and melamie in Turkish. Pronunciations change. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah, very interesting. Can you talk then a bit about Sufism? What is it and what, how does the way of blame fit into it all? Well, we discussed some of what Sufism could be seen as. I'm being very careful here. Um, in the, the other interview, the first interview, um, basically the mystical dimension of Islam. Yeah. And I also said how some people believe that Sufism had already existed before the advent of the Prophet Muhammad's mission. Um, I fall somewhere in between these two groups. Yes, in, in a certain form, Sufism has always been around as a mystical approach, but not as a formal mystical approach until after the advent of the Prophet Muhammad's mission. And uh, his his uh, cousin, and one could say his adopted spiritual son, uh, Hazrat Ali. So Ali is the doorway to the, the rest of Sufism. He represents the esoteric side of Islam. And all of Sufism comes through that door, uh, at least one of the doors. The other door is... Um, is uh, something we could get into, but it's far more complex. So let's just say that the that Sufism arises out of the family of the Prophet Muhammad. Yes. Um, and it doesn't really, it doesn't really uh, identify itself with that name until roughly the ninth century, which is two to 300 years after the Prophet's demise. So, Melamia rose around the same time, further away from um, Khalifal authority, which was located in mainly in present-day Iraq and Syria. The Melamia rose in Khorasan, which, as I said, was an expanded or extended province of uh, what today is, is Iran. So we had two schools of, uh, basically we had two schools of Islamic mysticism, one which took the name Sufi, the other which took the name uh, Melami or Malami, and they both arose around the same period of time. And they, of course, they had in intercourse with each other, by which I mean communication, not sexual intercourse, uh, intercourse with each other. But there were differences between the two. The Melamiya, uh, preferred to take a more inward path, you could say. And they focus more on the psychological attributes of, of, uh, of their adherents. Uh, what do I want to say about that? They focused also on what's called muhasaba, or uh, a self-evaluation of the individual soul, uh, a proto-psychology or proto-psychological approach. Whereas that wasn't so much the case in the main stream of Sufism. Is the complexity after the death of the Prophet Muhammad that you're pointing to the uh, issue of the Sunni and the Shia uh, divergence? Is that the complexity that you're pointing to? I think you, you, you detail some of that here in this book, don't you? Well, that's part of it, but I don't think that's really the, the most essential part. The most essential part is... Um, a differentiation that we can make between exoteric Islam and esoteric Islam. 
and uh, exoteric Islam uh, from 200 years on after the death of the prophet it gradually became dominated by what by what is called the ulama or or the official scholars of Islam and particularly those who were legalists you know the the uh, fuqaha as it's called in arabic so the elite, what, what we could call a more legalistic interpretation of Islam and its rules, the Sharia, became predominant in exoteric Islam and remains so to this day. In esoteric Islam, the emphasis was more on the inward state of the supplicant or the believer who was attempting to come into a more direct contact with God himself. So these two tendencies within Islam, the one more dominant, the legalistic, worshipful, ritualistic aspect of Islam, and the other, the more interiorized, yes, meditative aspect of Islam, you could say, and, and more rapturous and ecstatic, were always in a tension between the two. And they remain so to this day. I would say that the the what I would refer to as the legalistic aspect of Islam uh, tends to predominate in most areas of the world today for many complicated reasons, historical reasons. And Sufism, which always played a part in mainstream Islam, at least throughout most of its history up till the last century, um, Sufism remained more in in the background, and and nowadays is actually being is being attacked by the so-called Salafia or Salafis, who are a school that predominates in, or I should say, is most greatly supported by the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, etc., all of whom, because of their immense oil wealth began to propagate a literalist, fundamentalist view of Islam, or rather approach to Islam, which is now referred to the Salafia. So I don't know how far we want to get into the politics of Islam, or rather of Sufism and Islam, but I think I'd rather stay away from that for the most part and get into the subject of Sufism itself. Mm -hmm. Well, then let's address some of, some of its underpinnings. You make some very interesting points, and we teased this actually towards the end of the last interview, but we didn't go there, about the, uh, well, as you call it, the substructure of medieval Sufism was heavily dependent on late Hellenistic thought, Neoplatonism, and Neopythagoreanism. Yes. Throughout its history, Sufism was nurtured by the contributions of mystical Judaism and Christianity. Complicating the issue further, there are indications that later Sufi thought was also influenced by other religious traditions from Central and South Asia, particularly Hinduism, and as some would assert, Buddhism. And that's from your, the second chapter of your, of your book, uh, Sufism, The Way of Blame. Could you talk a little bit about this? Could you unpack some of the ideas in that, that, that paragraph yeah, I just read? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, Islam grew up, so to speak, alongside already existing traditions, predominantly uh, Christian, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and not just Orthodox Christianity, but all the variants of Eastern Christianity, and also uh, Judaism, 
we could add to that influences coming from Zoroastrianism. Um, so Islam grew up alongside the, the two main monotheistic religions, uh, Judaism and, and Christianity. Therefore, there, there was some influence. Now, how much influence is a matter of debate, but Islam itself drew from those sources. And the Quran itself, uh, if, if you dig into the Quran, uh, will often address issues that you find in the Bible, both the New Testament and the Old Testament. So that's about Islam itself. Sufism also, as the interior aspect of Islam, was influenced similarly. What also occurred was the translation of ancient Greek texts into Arabic very early on in the history of Islam. And some of those texts included a stream of Neoplatonism, but disguised under Neo-Aristotelianism. Now we're getting into scholarly distinctions. I'm going to try to minimize that. Oh, don't. Don't minimize them. It's interesting. Oh, okay. Um, ba basically, all of the influences of later Hellenism which had also shaped the cosmologies of Judaism and Christianity, began to shape the cosmology of Muslim philosophers and, and mystics. So the, the entire substructure, I would say, of Neoplatonism, beginning with uh, Plotinus himself, continuing through Proclus and the Aeneids, where it's expressed in the Aeneids, um, all of that filtered into Islam, its early uh, cosmologies, because there were several, uh, the school, schools of philosophy. Uh, and that through that, at least it began to filter into intellectual Sufism. Could you identify some of the key, I suppose, tenets or points of this Neoplatonism that was disguised as Neo-Aristotelianism, and, yes, yes. and how that interacted with these various cosmologies that Islam had uh, at that at that time period. Well, the 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 main idea inherited from Neoplatonism is emanationism, in other words, that the One or God comes into existence as not only a transcendent but imminent principle in a continuum rather than being a creator God who stands apart from his creation. So that God flows down into being uh, in Arabic, wujud, and, it, and his predominant characteristics stand out through existing in phenomenal reality. You know? Now, this is thought of by some people as being a, a type of pantheism, it's not, it's, but what it is is panentheism meaning that the creation, the entire universe, is an aspect of God rather than apart from God, if you're following my logic. Yeah. So this emanationist view uh, filtered down into Sufism, particularly the school of Ibn al-Arabi, which, uh, which evolved after uh, Muhyiddin ibn Arabi came on the scene, so an entire metaphysics developed slowly and began to be articulated more fully through Ibn Arabi and his successors. And this is referred to by Titus Burkhardt as the central doctrine of Sufism. Now, is it? No, I think he's wrong. 
because there are Sufis who are dualistic and some who are non-dualistic. I would say the non-dualistic tendency or, or trend is most uh, evidently pronounced in the school of Ibn al-Arabi. As you're talking there, you're reminding me of a uh, passage from the third chapter uh, in your book, which talks about this, these two divergent approaches to Sufism. I'll read it here. There have been two divergent approaches to Sufism that have had a direct bearing on how one interprets the whole of Islam. The first approach is thoroughly unitive and might be called a form of qualified non-dualism, approaching monism. The yes. second approach is decidedly dualistic. So I'm wondering if you could describe those two views and also uh, give us a sense of the implications of those views. You, you said here for interpreting Islam, but also perhaps other implications in terms of practice or how one expresses one's practice in those sorts of schools. So perhaps you could unpack those two divergent approaches a little more. Well, okay. I think there's praxis and approach, method and practice. Uh, practice is affected to a high degree by the approach one takes to that practice. Uh, otherwise, the practices within Sufism are, I would say, remarkably similar across the board, whether the more dualistic forms of Sufism or the non-dualistic forms of Sufism. Um, by the way, in Hassan Shushid in particular, differenti differentiated for J.G. Bennett the northern schools of Sufism and the southern schools of Sufism. It's approximately correct that the non-dualistic approach to Sufism found a natural home in central, in Khorasan and, and Central Asia, closer to the east. Uh, Ibn Arabi came from the west, from Andalusia, but nonetheless his doctrines or his approach were not particularly welcome in, in the solidly ulama, orientated middle Middle East, meaning Egypt and Syria and Iraq. So he had to flee Egypt at a certain point because he was hounded out of Egypt by the ulama and he went east to Anatolia, present day Turkey, where he settled for a while in the city of Konya, which was the same city that Medlana Jalal and Rumi occupied. They weren't particularly close, it appears, but the the uh, um, the successor and adopted son of Ibn Arabi, a man named Konawi or Konevi, was a very close friend of Rumi. And in fact, at Rumi's funeral, officiated over the funeral uh, as his closest friend. So in Konya, central Anatolia, present day Turkey, the school of Ibn Arabi, the Akbari school, developed highly through Konevi and began to move eastward, as well as to only a slight, well, how do I put this? To slighter effect westward uh, as an organized school of thought that, that expressed this emanationist scheme or schema most fully. And this had a great effect on the early formation of the Ottoman madrasas or religious seminaries, where Ibn Arabi was adopted as uh, entirely orthodox, whereas in the West, further West, at least in Egypt and in Syria, 
the thought of Ibn Arabi had been attacked quite severely as heretical. Right? So here's the political influence, let's say. Uh, the Ottomans accept Ibn Arabi early on. He becomes part of the formal curricula of the seminaries or madrasas in, in the Ottoman Empire. And uh, he also moves eastward uh, through a, a number of different figures who are disciples of Konevi, <laughs> spreading up into Central Asia. This is around the 14th century, incidentally. Simultaneously in Central Asia, we have uh, the Khwajagan Brotherhood, which is which J.G. Bennett believed was at the heart of Gurdjieff's a so-called Sarmang, uh, and we find them uh, highly uh, accepting almost in full Ibn Arabi's ideas and, and, and synthesizing them into their own approach. So the Khwaja Khan become conveyors of Ibn Arabi's ideas and approach. Interestingly, they're located in Central Asia, where other influences are at play. So this is where there's there are influences that come in potentially, and we don't know exactly, through Buddhism, which was widely spread throughout the Silk Route in Central Asia, and also certain forms of Hinduism, particularly uh, Advaitin Hinduism, which certainly occupied the Sindh, a province of India, which was early occupied by Muslims. Did I answer the question? Yes, yeah, certainly you did. Yeah. Are, are there any clues other than the geography Mm. of of these uh, different religions and different uh, systems being uh, overlapping and coexisting. Are there any clues in Sufism of or hints of Buddhist or Hindu, for example, Vedanta influence? Yeah, uh, there's a, a controversial thesis proposed by Richard Zainer. Um, I forget the title of this book, but it compares Shankaracharya and uh, one of the early Melami Sufis, Bayezid Bistami, uh, in which he proposes, uh, because of what Bayezid reported, that Bayezid's teacher was non-Muslim. In fact, he had to teach him how to pray, the most basic thing in Islam, um, and was possibly a Vedantin. Uh, and what we find through Bayezid Bistami is the, the first expression, in literature at least, of uh, a union, a union mystica with God that, that, mm, that identifies this central human being or the core of the human being with God himself. This is extremely controversial in Islam and was, was uh, critiqued heavily. Uh, but it resurfaces over and over again. Are there other things we can point to? Well, no, but it's known that Biruni had translated Patanjali's classical yoga into Arabic. So that's one thing we know historically. And there are just anecdotes, very minor, I would say, anecdotes of meetings between Sufis and yogis. Carl uh, Ernst, whose, whose specialty is the Indo-Pakistani subcontinent, talks about that. Um, these are later, later anecdotal events. Um, as far as anything else, no, it's still scant. We do know that Afghanistan was predominantly Buddhist, of course. Afghanistan playing a, a, a very important part in the development of Central Asia, Balk uh, being an important city, uh, Herat being another one. 
Um, but no, I no, it's still highly speculative. To engage in some more speculation, then, I wonder, was there? Do you think? Well, we, we've talked about the influence of the possible influence of Neoplatonism on uh, Sufism. Certainly, in fact, you've said that's the common language of the common language of Hellenism is the is shared by the mystics. This is a quote from you of the three monotheisms to describe what their gnosis is aiming for. So there's some sense in which the three monotheisms, at least in their mystical uh, expressions, share some sort of common common language. I'm wondering if you might sketch how that how that shows up in the three monothe monotheisms. But I'm also uh, interested, and this is a totally different question, so I might ha I might have to ask you again after you've answered the first one. Do you see any evidence of Islam? influencing Buddhism or influencing Hinduism or or in what ways did Islam influence Christianity as it was evolving in these places in, in these in these time periods? Well, there's some speculation that during the Crusades, some of the ideas but and possibly even practices of Islam filtered into the, shall we say, Catholic mystical orders. But uh, I don't find much evidence for that. You know. um, no, I think the commonalities are, are not historically traceable. Uh, but there were subtle influences that occurred. In Eastern Orthodoxy, um, there was, or I should say there is evidence of the prayer of the heart being influenced by Sufi sources, J.G. Bennett gets into that, speculates in a speculative way. Uh, is that true? Is it not? It's hotly contested. We know that the form of the prayer of the heart changed after there was more contact with the with the Ottomans. Um, Saint, is it Saint, yes, Saint Gregory Palamas, very important figure in the development of Hesychism, had been taken captive by Muslim pirates and lived for a year in captivity. And it is said that he uh, frequented the company of a dervish who practiced zikr. So zikr, the practice of zikr, may have had an influence on Gregory Palamas's changes in the form of the hesychistic prayer of the heart, which included more movement and more breathing, uh, or let's say uh, the prayer on the breath. Yeah? I don't know. We don't know. That's not conclusive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting indeed. I wonder if we might get into some of the specifics of Sufi practice, or the Malamiya practice, certainly. Uh, you write in chapter 9, In traditional Sufism, various maps of spiritual development include states and stations of consciousness that define the wayfarer's spiritual journey, suluk. In so, you'll have to excuse my excuse my pronunciation. I don't. No, no, my mine isn't that great either. I keep okay. <laughs> shifting from Arabic to Persianate to Turkic to you know. Don't worry about it. Okay, in such maps, the wayfarer Salik is typically imagined as inhabiting four successive phases of development, and then a little later you say, the mapping of the phases of psycho-spiritual development contained in the makamat or stations also implies the curriculum of the Sufi path as a whole. So I'm wondering, perhaps by way of explaining the Sufi path, we might 
look at these four phases of teaching, these four, these four stations, and also these seven stages of wisdom. What are they? How does one traverse them? Well, the four phases, I wouldn't call them stations, phases larger than or more encompassing than stations, are traditionally, and this is not only true of Melami Sufism, but of Sufism as a whole, um, are uh, defined as the Sharia, that is conforming to religious law and ethics, Tariqa, entrance into a particular order or school of Sufism, and here we have some differences. Marifa and Hakika. Marifa means uh, the state of direct cognition, directly cognizing the presence of God. And Hakika is absorption and separation from God. Meaning, uh, Hak, the Hak means uh, truth or reality with a capital T, capital R. Uh, but it also means um, divine the state of divine justice or balance. So to enter into the hakika is to enter into a phase akin to enlightenment, I suppose, where one is living according to one's proximity to God, ongoing proximity to God. Uh, it's informed by God through his direct presence, and it's a life that's further ethically developed through divine justice and divine balance. That's sort of the end goal. Or at least is one expression of the end goal. You know, I'm, I'm getting bogged down a little bit in scholastic definitions of things. Um, let's talk a little less about these, the scholarly basis of all this. Let's talk about the experiential basis. In order to enter a, a school or an order of Sufism, a person must show that he's relatively characterologically balanced, an ethically balanced person. Once that is shown through direct contact over time, which is tested, the person may be inducted, may be taken into the, that particular tariqa as a murid or an aspirant or a student. In the Tariqa phase, one is taught various uh, meditative uh, practices, which are meant to deepen one's experience or connection to one's, to one's interiority, to one's spiritual heart, which is, uh, as I said before, I think, allegorically the interior function or awakening of the spirit within the, within the depths of that person's own psyche. So that's the Tarika is there to teach the methods and to balance them, to balance the effects. As that ripens, one comes into these states of direct cognition, you know, wakefulness, mindfulness, deeper mindfulness, and wakefulness. And as that occurs, and as that deepens, then one comes into contact, or in, it actually begins to experience at least momentary um, unions with what we call God. Now, what is that God? Is it only a personal God? No, it's not. It's the personal and impersonal aspects of Allah or God. Yeah? And I don't want to get stuck here on this idea that there's a 
a union with a strictly personal God, even though uh, the the uh, language of Islam, as well as even more so Christianity, and to some extent Judaism, uh, emphasizes the personal aspect of God. God is a very difficult word to use, yeah, for something which is non-delimited, not limited to any one concept, not limited to the personal or impersonal depths of reality. So we have to be careful when we use that word. Yeah. Through that direct cognition, then the fuller development of the murid takes place in which he acclimates, so to speak, to what we call the variegation of the psyche. It's, it's different fluctuations. Um, at, at some points, it's self-identified, and at other points, it detaches from self-identification altogether. So we have this fluctuating, pulsating, variegating state of identification with the source, what's called that God, and with, on the other hand, individual individ, individuation and ego identification on the other end of the spectrum. Now, one difference that you'll find in Sufism is that individuation, the individuated human being, the egoic human being never dissolves fully. It's always present and always further undergoing a process of further refinement throughout its life and perhaps beyond its life. So while the emphasis on Buddhism is to, to discover not, no self in certain schools, others will say non-self, some will say no self, to discover that, that egoic reality is illusory, also accentuated in Advaita Vedanta, that is not the case in classical Sufism. It is not seen as simply illusory. It is seen as functionally necessary. Big difference, I think. I'm wondering about that initial phase of, of moral scrutiny and testing. Mm -hmm. What sort of moral standard is looked for here? What is being uh, investigated and how are these tests performed? Well, uh, it depends on the school of Sufism. Among Orthodox Sufis, a strict adherence to the Sharia is very important. That's the gauge, yeah? But uh, in the Melamiya, the Sharia is not seen as in, in the same fixed way as it might be among the more Orthodox or Orthodox Muslims. What's most important is some a quality called akhlaq, which is refinement of character through a deep ethical form of reflection, right? And it doesn't stop. It's not just an initial phase at all. It's ongoing, yeah? So I would say the ethics or the view of the Sharia among many Malamis is far more flexible and adaptable than it is among more literalist or fundamentalist Muslims. How is that tested? Well, in a sense, it's, it's, there's no exam for it. it. It's tested, so to speak, in the relationship that one has to one's teacher or potential teacher, as well as those who occupy his circle. 
So in a provisional or candidacy stage, let's say, um, before one is inducted fully, uh, one attends certain meetings, circles, uh, and, and within the circle, I should say. And, and uh, one is being observed for how one interacts with others, as well as with the, the provisional, let's say, or potential teacher. Does one observe uh, decent etiquette? Does one seem to be caring of others and not just oneself? There are many, many uh, aspects of, of good akhlaq, good ethics, and good adab, or good uh, etiquette. I can't give you a full list, mm -hmm. if that's what you're looking for. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting, where you're putting it. Could you give a representative example of the flexibility of the um, view of Sharia that you're yeah. talking that some of the Malamir would have? Perhaps contrast it with the more orthodox, um, stricter view? Mm -hmm. uh, this is getting into controversial territory. Yeah. Even before we get to the Melamia, among sheikhs of the more orthodox recognized orders, the application of the Sharia is gentler, I would say, than among the ulama. It's not as severe. It's based on what I would call a situationist ethics. In other words, each case, if you want to call it a case, of ethical conduct or misconduct is evaluated according to the conditions that pertain at the time, rather than through fixed moral rules that are absolute. Now, that doesn't mean that everything's up for grabs. Situa a situation, sorry, a situationalist ethics is not the same as relativistic, a relativistic form of ethics. Yeah. It's not loosey-goosey, uh, but it's based more on perception of where the individual is, how the individual is relating to others, how the individual uh, is forced at times to relate to others in a different way than absolute ethics would require, like that. No different than a deeper form of ethical reflection. Am I making sense? Yes, it does make sense. I I'm wondering if a specific example comes to mind or a specific case, I suppose, representative case comes to mind. Well, I don't want to get into sexual ethics. But that's something that's in the air, given these scandals that surround teachers and their students. Yeah, I, I, I've been following some of the controversies within Buddhism. I know about them in Hinduism. Um, I know about them in Christianity. And, and they certainly occur within the Islamic framework as well. Um, okay. Among very orthodox Muslims, as a male, one is allowed to marry up to four women to be polygamous. Among Muslims uh, in more developed nations, for example, Turkey, that was that was seen and is still seen as as uh, reactionary. 
uh, monogamy is the standard, yeah? Um, here we get now into traditional customs. Um, one does not engage in sexual intercourse with outside of marriage, and the marriage has to be a formal marriage. And among Turks, at least, monogamy is meant to continue perpetually. In other words, one gets married, and, and one does not divorce, except in the most extreme of circumstances. Yeah, it's very different in classical Islam, where the, the male retains the right to divorce and where he can take multiple wives and where he can take even take on concubines and so on and so forth. So we're dealing here with right situational differences as well as socio-historical differences. Well, how would one view that? I mean, you know, the, the absolutistic ethics of Islam which some, which the Salafia go back to, or at least most of them do, say it's perfectly fine for a male to have not only his wife, but without her knowledge, even a second wife and a third. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Right? Certainly, it seems to be okay among the orthodox schools of law. Certainly, it seems to be okay within the Quran itself. So uh, why is it now that people insist on monogamy? Why is it that they insist on a wom woman's equal rights to divorce? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So how do you think through these things? And I would say according to socio-historical context. Yeah. How would a Melami uh, contend with... Uh, what with with the murid uh, having more than one woman in his life if he's a male or a female having more than one man it depends on the socio-historical context yeah they're changing norms uh, especially in europe and america so how do you evaluate all of this and then you know and, and there's no set answer to that one feels one's, one's way through it has to be guided by uh, minimizing harm, and one's ethics has, has to be guided by minimizing harm. One's ethics also has to be guided by um, the greatest degree of compassion and understanding. Now, that doesn't mean a free-for-all, yeah? But we can't really deal, I can't really fully answer your question without getting into a specific case and, and one that you can provide, not me. Because in order for me to provide a case, I think I would have to abridge the confidentiality of people who've come to me with certain ethical questions. So I throw the ball back in your court. Mm. No, I think you've you've explained the, the differences there very, very clearly. Thank you. Oh, and okay. I, I, I didn't find that it was that clear. Oh. I don't well, want to dodge your questions, right? They're important ones. But I find it difficult uh, without becoming overly academic to answer them as fully as I might. Yeah, I find the academic layers very interesting. And yeah. it also grounds what you're saying um, in more than just, well, it, well, not more than just anything. It, it, it gives a sense of, of where what you're saying is coming from. Yes, you've you've um, gone deeply into the path of Sufism, as, for want of a better word, 
uh, practitioner. Um, and you've also studied its uh, social historical context in great depth, and that a lot of that's reflected in the book. So I think it's interesting to bring those layers in. They're um, they're a part of they're a part of how you've arrived at what you're saying. It seems. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Uh, when it comes to Sharia, there are various schools of Islamic law. Uh, my teacher, uh, Mehmet Salim, and I agreed that the approach we would take to the, the Sharia is what is now called a critical progressive view, which is quite different from the more orthodox schools of law. Um, But whether that really is relevant to most people who are not Muslim is another question. Knowing that, all of that, knowing the academic background of that, Mm -hmm. or knowing the scholastic uh, or scholarly aspect of that. I think what's more important is how you come off treating people in general without needing to discuss all of that background. I'm not saying the background isn't important. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think anyone who's this who's, who's still with us at this point probably uh, is interested in both. Yeah, but you see, I, I find myself so far in, in this interview wearing a pro- professorial hat. Yeah. And... Um, I'd rather get into the juice mm. rather than just the structure or the historical background. No. The actual practice. Right. Well, that was actually going to be my next question. So that's a perfect segue. Okay. Uh, that's a perfect segue, I think. Uh, you talked about after this initial period of observation and moral scrutiny, one becomes initiated and then engages in these practices, these practices you talked about uh, taking one in, uh, in, into one's interior heart i think how you put it, yeah what are these practices can you give a sense of what sort of initial practices one might yeah encounter yes. and how they work how they progress for the from a practitioner's point of view can i uh put share screen on and show you some sure. diagrams oh yeah, yeah. for sure there two components to practice. One is individual practice and the other is communal practice, practice with others. Let's let's start with the individual practices. Most importantly, one must practice what's called remembrance or liquor, which is a, a meditative form and zikr takes or has rather several layers or dimensions starting from the most outward form where one recites something out loud to subverbal form where one simply focuses on a mantra-like repetition usually of one of god's names and, and that is coordinated often with one's breath and that deepens and goes down into what, what's called the zikr of the heart. Much emphasis being placed symbolically and literally on the heart center, which referred to as the kalb in Sufism. And as the zikr or, or meditative approach deepens, it begins to occupy a certain silent place in the heart where one begins gradually to sense a presence which is not identifiable solely with oneself, the state of presence. This leads to muraqaba, if we follow 
this diagram, which is a form of relaxed yet vigilant awareness. Yeah, there's a similarity here to mindfulness practice, where one sits uh, in silence and where the silence deepens and one comes into communication with a deeper form of witnessing, yeah? mushahada. And at first one takes the witness to be oneself, but then gradually it becomes evident that the witness is not simply oneself, but rather that which is witnessing. That there is a, a quality of conscious observation that is not limited to oneself. It begins to expand and to reveal itself as a consciousness that flows in and through all of being. As that deepens, one comes into connection with that. Well, there are further stages. There are, there, there are stages that unfold that we map out, as you know, through the book, uh, and which we can return to later. Now comes group practice. And I would say within Sufism, group practice is as important as individual practice. One attends a circle in which guidance is provided. Guidance is referred to in Arabic as irshad. And this is usually provided by a murshid, a, direct, a spiritual director. Um, guidance has to be there for the, for the, uh, the circle to be fully functional. Um, there has to be, over time, a bond that's developed between teacher and student, or murid um, and murshid, a bond of affection and respect. There also increasingly has to be, on the further uh, right side of that square, a safeguarding of the teaching. That is, that one doesn't boast about being a Sufi, one doesn't spread the inner teachings of Sufis among those who can't comprehend it, one safeguards or protects the teaching in itself. There's also the practice of tawajju, which is, originally tawajju means to turn one's face in a certain direction. And among many of the Sufi orders that use this term, tawajju, it means uh, turning one's attention to and remembering one's guide. Yeah. Uh, in the Melami way, there's an effacement that's mutual. That is, a letting go of the strictures that define a strictly egoic approach to the other. That And that takes place not only on the part of the murid or the student, but on the part of the teacher as well. Yeah. A self-effacing attitude towards each other. Um, and in our circle, we practice this among all the members of the circle as well. Tawaju also means transmission. Now, in most of Sufism, transmission is thought to occur through the teacher to the student. You know, it's, it's a, a force like Shaktipat in Hinduism that's transmitted through the teacher to the student. We don't view it that way. We, we, we view the baraka, the power and the force of transmission or the grace of transmission as something that arises in the between. 
between student and teacher. It is not something that's transmitted by the teacher. It's something that arises between the student and the teacher if the conditions are correct. Mutual effacement, same thing. It, it means to drop one's egoic identification. And it also means entering into an I-thou form of relationship, which allows for recognition of the being that unites both student and teacher and beyond that as well. These two uh, squares were overlaid in what we describe as an octagon, mutually reinforcing each other. Okay. That's the simplest way you can describe it. Thank you. And what are the seven stages of wisdom? In most of, of Sufism, there's the idea that one ascends through certain stages of uh, ego refinement, the makamat, the stations. These are requirements. Yeah? One encounters certain states which are transitory, but then one integrates those states over time so that they become part of one's stabilized bottom line, so to speak. They're integrated into one's psyche more fully, at which point they become more stable, more accessible, easily accessible and stable. We're talking now about the states, yeah? So different Sufi orders organize these maps differently. In our map, the seven stages have to do with beginning at the, the, the primary level which most, most of humanity still exists at, is that of the what's called the rapacious or <laughs> commanding self, meaning a rapacious or commanding form of egotism. Yeah. Um, the second developmental layer is, is that of the conscientious form of self, one that, that has scruples or ethics. The third stage is the inspired self, where one retains one's scruples and sense of ethics, but one encounters a more rapturous or expansive sense of self that's more spontaneous. The fourth state is the tranquil, where one evens out, so to speak, and one becomes more meditatively calm. And that becomes, uh, the, that's called the tranquil self, by the way, if I didn't say it. That becomes the sine qua non for further developments to take place. Uh, at, at which point the aspirant may begin to experience certain effacements of their own personality, their actions, their attributes, and finally, their personhood entirely. Now, what do I mean by effacement? One begins in, in, the, in one's meditative states to experience that my actions are not strictly mine. My attributes, characterological attributes and, and temperamental attributes, my states that change when one's observing the flow of consciousness are not mine. Yeah. And finally, the one who's witnessing all of that, the deep self, egoic self, 
is effaced and one recognizes that my ego does not arise purely out of itself. It's an endowment. These are the three effacements that lead to fana, a passing away of the normal egocentric point of view. And that opens up to, uh, or is rather accumulated powerfully in an experience of what the Buddhists call stream entry, where one transcends oneself altogether. Or in Sufi, in the Sufi approach or Sufi parlance, one experiences the dropping off of the individual ego and a fusion or unification with God. That is not meant, however, to be uh, permanent. One then separates from that. And this is the stage, further stage of baka. Baka means continuance. Baka billah, continuance with or in or through God. So that God or the presence of God Again, we have to be careful with that word and what it means. The presence of God uh, remains with one continuously. One can drop back into that awareness, even though one is egoically re-identified. As that smooths out, that fluctuating sense of presence, it's referred to as gemal gem, meaning the gathering of gatherings or the coincidence of the gathering, meaning the gathering of what? The effacements and one's fluctuating sense of self, which is on a continuum. Is that making any sense to you? Yes. Hmm. The third stage I think you used the word um, ecstatic, did you? Uh, of the macabre's inspired. Mm. Yeah. inspired yeah. Mm. Well, in that case, what does the role of the ecstatic play into this? Is it is it uh, is this ecstatic subsumed by that fourth tranquil stage? Yes. Or does ecstasy continue throughout throughout the rest of the stages? Well, one becomes ego-identified with a state of and seeks a more rapturous expression that's spontaneous in the third stage of development. Um, each of these stages of development are still egoic. Hmm. So one can become fixated. Yeah. For example, somebody becoming uh, or entering into the third stage might become a what's called a bliss ninny and seek out blissful or rapturous states and become addicted to them, right? You don't have to be a Sufi to do this. I mean, you can become a drug addict and do that. So uh, this is not seen as, you know, the, by any means uh, the end point of mysticism. The fourth stage is more mature, right? The rapture becomes more calm. Uh, one becomes less of an ecstatic Sufi and one becomes more of a sober Sufi. You, I think you find the same thing in the jhanas, for example, or something similar. That's what I was thinking. That's what prompted my question, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Rapture and then equanimity. Yeah, what happens to the pity and the sukha? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. Very interesting. Speaking of comparative mysticism, 
St. John of the Cross has his Dark Knight of the Soul. The Theravada, you know, Vasudhi Maga map of insight has its Dukkananas. Is there a desert experience pointed to in the Sufi path as either an inevitability or at least a possibility as one's going through either these first four stages or, or these stages of um, effacement that you've described? Is there a sort of desert uh, period that one might traverse on this particular path? I would say definitely. Yes, differs from person to person, but but uh, certainly, uh, if you enter seriously into the practice of Sufism, Melami Sufism or otherwise, um, you're going to come up against any number of existential crises, and they don't stop. For some people, they're quite dramatic, and for others, less so, but they don't stop. Yeah. And they continue. Sometimes they become even more challenging. The more advanced in one's practice, the more challenging these crises seem to, to be. So it doesn't end. Many of the great Sufis were martyred, many of the prophets were rejected. And that caused great suffering to those people. I'm not saying the inevitable result is greater suffering, but I'm saying that that the the process of any deep spiritual process is going to take you through very challenging moments, if not extended periods of time. And does Sufism describe those moments? In uh, do they tend to have certain characteristics that are no. no, no, could be anything. No. Hmm. I'm also wondering about the role of the teacher and the role of the circle of the group, how crucial those are. You know, we're, if we're thinking once again, a bit of comparative mysticism, the role of the guru, for example, you mentioned Buddhism, it has different, there are different kinds of guru, depending on the vehicle. And also, as you say, the yeah. strand of Buddhism and so on. So I'm wondering, what is the relationship with the teacher like? Or what is the role of the relationship of the teacher? How is that seen? And the relationship you've emphasized with the circle is very important too. How do those relationships operate uh, in, um, in conjunction with the individual path of mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, self-reflection and so on? Well, I would say that, that Sufism cannot be learned without a teacher, without the presence of a teacher in one's life. I'm very traditional in that way. And not only is a teacher required, but the teacher become, must become, or one's relationship to one's teacher must become one of a deep spiritual friendship in which there are bonds of mutual affection and respect. Without that, there's no transmission of the teaching. So like, uh, as in Buddhism, the three gems, Buddha, Sangha, Dharma, and Sangha, the same pertains to Sufism. If you, if you are missing one of these three, 
the Buddha, of course, becoming later on the Lama or the Guru, at least in Tibetan or Vajrayana Buddhism, um, or the Roshi, in, I suppose, in Zen Buddhism. Um, without that central figure and having a relationship to that figure that deepens over time, strictly speaking, there's no transmission. Now, how that occurs? Well, that occurs over time. There's a mutual a period of mutual testing, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. Um, but it's absolutely essential. Sufism is passed down from hand to hand. Yeah, there's a chain of transmission, a silsala. And one is the, either the expression is one is grafted onto the tree or not. And if one is not grafted onto the tree, both inwardly and outwardly, then one cannot function as a Sufi teacher. Yes. And this, the silsile, plural of chain, yeah, the chains of transmission go back and they're detailed in each Sufi Taraka all the way back to Muhammad. So in Orthodox Sufi circles or traditional Sufi circles, the Muhammad of your time is the Sheikh who sits before you. He sits as a representative of the Prophet Muhammad and he sits as a representative of Jalal al Rumi or Abdul Qadir Gilani or Ahmed Rifai or whoever was the peer or the grandfather, so to speak, who initiated that particular approach in Sufism. This is true. Yeah. Without that, no, no transmission. You can, you can practice up to a point, but there's no deep transmission. So it's a, 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 an exacting interpersonal approach to spirituality. Yeah, fascinating. Are there signs in Sufism of, um, I suppose, progress through these seven stages of wisdom? Are there signs of spiritual uh, potency or ability or something of this city, I suppose, of that sort? Are these sorts of things discussed in Sufism? Well, cities are not particularly important in Sufism. And less so in Melami Sufism, Keramet in Turkish, Karamat in Arabic, miracles. Hmm. Sufism is filled with miracle stories. Right. Uh, my teacher disavowed all of that. Found of no importance whatsoever. He said the only miracle for him is mutual self, mutual understanding. And I agree. To encounter deep mutual understanding in this life is a miracle. That's all that counts for me and that's all that counted for him. Whether miracles, meaning physical events of one sort or another that are 
supranormal or paranormal occur? Okay, maybe yes, maybe no. But to focus on that too much is to distract. I have two more lines of questioning. The first being a bit about human completeness and the other being the future of Sufism in the West, which is you end your book with with a discussion on that. It's been 2012, so 10 years since you published this book. So I'm, I'm curious if you have any more reflections on the future of Sufism in the West than is here. But first of all, human completeness. Um, you've hinted at this already. Like many so sober Sufis before him, the peer did not accept that union with God was an end in itself. Instead, jam, gathering, was as a prelude to another form of individuation, a second separation. Yeah. And you go on to talk about the importance of that and the ethics of actualization and uh, in this chapter 10 on human completeness. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It would seem perhaps at first glance, surely union with God is the pinnacle. That's, that's the top of the mountain. But no, no. it's not the case. No. Uh, experiences of union with God, or even if you follow a path that doesn't posit God in a monotheistic sense, but rather um, a connection with, let's call it, primordial reality. Yeah. Uh, even in, even if one experiences, well, I'll use Buddhist terms, stream entry. Yeah one still has to come back to an individuated life doesn't isn't that the case now from my perspective that means reassuming an egoic identity that brings us to the question of whether ego formation or egoic reality is simply illusory or whether it's part of the spectrum, fuller spectrum, I use Ken Wilber's expression, spectrum of consciousness, which is an expression uh, or even an embodiment of divine reality. So in this respect, we're much closer to, say, the Shaivite form of Advaita. Uh, we see the eminent all of creation, including egoic reality, to be an expression of God not simply an illusion, which means that the purpose of becoming an individuated human being has purpose. It's not simply, some, some, simply something to be shunted aside or transcended entirely. So what does that mean? Who am I as an egoic being? Yeah. In relationship to other egoic beings. No, notice I'm using the word egoic, not egotistical. Egotism needs to be surmounted, yeah. But egoism, meaning individuated human being, is not, in our way, meant to be surmounted or surpassed. It rather it needs to be continuously refined. So psychoethical development is part of the divine purpose in realizing itself through human being. So how does that look? That second separation, 
What changes for the Sufi, of course, the context, it's a recontextualization, it seems, of that egoism. Um, but, and the practices, presumably, the same practices continue, and the same relationships continue with the teacher or with the circle, or presumably, eventually, with one's students. How does that shift happen between becoming, into becoming a sheikh oneself, into having one's own circle or mm-hmm. one's own students? Well, sheikh is simply a formal position, huh? Let's put that aside for a moment. How does one re- one's relationship to oneself and the world change? Uh, one, in the language of Mehmet Slim, one becomes less egocentric and more theocentric. I wouldn't use that language, uh, by the way. Uh, but I would say that the, the, the locus of self-identity shifts to a deeper place in which one's egoic personality is not is no longer viewed as one's deep self. You have a personality with all of its quirks, no doubt. Uh, you still function in a personal way. You still have your fallibilities, let's say. But you're not deeply convinced that that's all there is. Yeah. In fact, you know that's not true. So that illusion is dispelled. I'm a locus for the manifestation of being, capital B. It it lives itself through me, I would say. And it's always been that way. One just has to awaken to that. Then one recalibrates one's way of being in the world, for better or worse. Yeah. So the Melami school always saw itself as the graduate school of Sufism. What do you do after union with God, or in Buddhism, stream entry? Now what? Now you have to recalibrate. Yeah. And then there's another entry and another entry. It doesn't end. At one big bang, it continues. And we believe perpetually. We don't believe in a final enlightenment in, in the way that some Neo-Vedantins and Neo-Buddhists seem to. No, we believe it's perpetual. You hinted earlier about beyond. What's, what's the Sufi take on death as part of, within the context of this path in particular? Oh, yeah, well, the Quranic view is that uh, one lives one life, dies, right? And if, I'm going to be really simplistic now, one, if one was an ethical person in life, one is judged in the afterlife, and one either is assigned to heaven or hell right, according to one's actions. Very simple view that we find in Christianity and many forms of Judaism as well. Okay. Is that or is that not the case? Well, that depends on whether you believe in the eternality of the soul or not. Yeah. And obviously certain traditions don't believe it's eternal or they believe that there's a reincarnating process of some sort. In Buddhism, it's different than Hinduism and so on and so forth. Do Sufis believe in reincarnation? On the whole, no, but some do. Some do. 
um, do they believe that there is an afterlife? Yes, they do. They believe that the afterlife is here and now anyway. One doesn't have to wait to experience the afterlife. No. What's it? What's it going to be like? Well, never mind that. What is this? Yeah. If you know what this is, this life, then there's a seamlessness between this life and the next. So you see, there are open variations on the theme. The most orthodox uh, Sufis, like orthodox Muslim, Muslims, believe that there is one life and an afterlife. One will be judged and one will either be more proximate to God or not. Okay, maybe, maybe not. Uh, my teacher didn't dwell on that. He read everything in the Quran pertaining to the next life as pertaining to this life. Mm. Do we experience hell in this life? Oh, yes, we do. Do we experience heaven in this life? We may. Do we experience the judgment of the Almighty in this life? Oh, yes, we do. If you want to call that karma, call it karma, but it exists. Fascinating. In the epilogue of your book, Sufism in the Way of Blame, which I keep holding up, <laughs> it's, really, it's a terrific book. You reflect on this question, what is the future of Sufism in the West? And so you had certain reflections at the time of publish, publishing this book in, in 2012. Now it's 2022, as yeah. we're talking. I wonder um, how your reflections in this epilogue hold up? Um, what, what has your view changed? Uh, wh what do you think now about this question? What is the future of Sufism in the West? Well, I wonder about the future of Sufism in, in, in the uh, greater Middle East as well. Yeah. Uh, as I said, it's under attack. It's being diminished. Um, but leaving that aside, uh, outside of a Muslim context, does Sufism have any future in a mostly secular form of society? And yes, I think so. But I think that in order for Sufism to adapt to more secular forms of society, that it has to bracket the more purely Islamic aspects of itself. It has to lay those aside to a certain degree and focus more on meditative practice. Um, so when, when before my, my uh, teacher died, my primary teacher, I should say, because I've had many. Uh, before he, he died, I asked him directly. I said, you know, we can't function the same way here as in a, in a Muslim-majority nation. I said, uh, and Islam uh, as a religion appears to be in a severe crisis. Uh, what do you think we should do vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Islamic Sufism? Should we continue to accentuate the Islamic aspects or should we put, the, put that on the back burner, so to speak, even if we're critical, progressive Muslims? And it was his view that we should put it on the back burner so that we take a more secular approach to Sufism. Not entirely secular. We're not secularists. Right. 
in the materialist and often atheist form, but we, we have to adapt to secular societies in which there's greater freedom of religion and freedom to be free of religion. So are we religious? You know, this is the next question we could, we could ask. Do we need to be religious particularly? Well, it depends on what you mean by religion and spirituality. One, one has to navigate between religiosity that's dogmatic and spirituality in the vaguer sense and more anemic sense that the new age often gives to it. Um, we were neither of those two extremes. So I think the future of Sufism lies in the between as a living tradition uh, that's not weighed down by dogmatic, doctrinaire, and sometimes cultic forms of expression. Oh, on top of which I would add authoritarian forms of expression, because within the traditional orders, there is a, a kind of authoritarianism that can develop because the uh, the orthodox Sufi, the, sorry, the Sufi orders that are more orthodox um, are also mirroring feudal conditions that are rather medieval. And they perpetuate those forms. So the Melamia came as a critique of all of that and continued to criticize all of that. Therefore, the Melamira, not strictly speaking, a Tariqa or a Sufi order. They're a school of Sufism that exists mostly outside the Tarikas. Does that help or further confuse yeah. the issue? Um, I don't, maybe not either. <laughs> I think it's very interesting. Okay. I don't feel more confused than I was before. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting indeed. The uh, relationship between religion and society, or particularly between religion and secularism, I think it's one of the great appeals of Islam, is its critique of the flaws or short shortcomings of secularism. I'm not saying I agree with the critique entirely, or yeah, uh, yeah, just saying yeah. that that it's there, and um, and it's a it's a strong appeal. It's part, part I think, uh, of uh, Islam, and I'm aware it's uh, also a, quite a converting force. But someone perhaps in a secular context becomes disillusioned with secularism and finds in Islam's critique of secularism something appealing. One certainly sees that here in the UK, where you know we have. Yeah, I'm aware of that. Yeah, how to strike that balance then? Because the power, part of the power of Islam's critique of secularism is it's got the the, the critique has a point. There, there is something not perhaps not quite satisfying, fulfilling, mm -hmm. whatever the case may be, in secularism and religion. Well, uh, well, maybe not. Yeah, well, religion. You know, religion say well. You see that shortfall, you know, we, we have the answer to that. So I'm wondering, uh, in bracketing cer certain aspects of the um, Islamic flavor, if you want, of or aspects of Sufism, um, 
is it is it losing some of its its potency and power? Is it becoming too too? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. No. I don't think so at all. Um, I think it gains potency. Um, you see, I, I don't think that in order to be deeply spiritual, one has to be dogmatic or believe in an absolute truth that is fixed. Huck, uh, the word for truth or reality in Arabic. It's used as one of the greatest names of God, yeah, and particularly for Ibn Arabi's school. The haqiyah, to arrive at the dimension of truth or reality. Is that a fixed truth? No. I view al-haq, the haq, as truth-giving perpetually, right? I don't view God as static, a static being, but rather a fluid, dynamic form of beingness. Yeah? So anything that limits God is absolutely abhorrent to Islam, right? That freezes God into one or another particular form or idol. Even the Muslim form of God, one could say. God, in my view, is an open-ended process that's continuously discovering itself, himself, through his sheer non-delimited beingness. How can you freeze that? In, in any of its expressions, how can you freeze it? On the contrary, the closer you come to that sense, living sense within yourself and potentially with others, the more you're living what that being wishes to live and express. Follow me so far? Mm -hmm. Yes. So now you might think of that as antinomian. Well, it's not meant to be antinomian, nor is it Bishar or outside the Sharia. I don't believe so. I believe it's a matter of how you approach Sharia or so-called divine law. Uh, and uh, Mehmet Salim and other Sufis that I worked with were absolutely convinced that the greatest potential for Sufism to develop was in the West, where it was free from the type of threats that Sufism encounters in the greater Middle East, threats and oppression. So here I will take a position, gladly. What form will it take? God knows. It's too fluid. And conditions around us are extraordinary at this point. The, the challenges to humanity are unprecedented. So how will Sufism meet that? In a way which is adaptable and pliable, and yet in a way that doesn't lose its essence. at least hopefully. Or as a Muslim would say, God willing. When you talk about the unprecedented challenges facing humanity, what, what are you thinking of when you say that? Oh, a number of things. Cli drastic climate change, which threatens ex our extinction. Uh, 
nuclear proliferation, uh, unending wars like the one in Ukraine, uh, the enormous gaps in wealth experienced by people, the wage, wage gap, gap or wealth gap, uh, which is increasing tensions throughout the world. Uh, uh, increasing pandemics or the increasing threat of pandemics. Um, shall I keep adding to the list? Um, artificial intelligence, the exp exponential growth of artificial intelligence and robotics. Or general artificial intelligence, which threatens to sur surpass human beings and it's and it's um, well general intelligence as the word says we've never faced that before and these are all elements of a perfect storm i think they all sort of fit together i don't mean to be dystopian but we're facing great threats to humanity as such the robotization of human beings through consumer capitalism, the nihilism that accompanies modernity or high modernity as some sociologists would claim or name it. I think these are unprecedented. So whatever form of spirituality one adopts, it has to face all of that in an intellectually honest way that's also not self-abandoning. What is the Sufi response then in the face of, of such an array of challenges? Depends on the Sufi. <laughs> See, there's no one Sufi response. Uh, it depends on the Sufi. We share certain things as Sufis. We disagree also. As I said, Sufism is a multiplex phenomenon. There's no one Sufi response. Is there one Buddhist response? Certainly no. not. No. no. So you'll find the same same differences among so-called Sufis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was not, not a particularly intelligent question, I'll admit. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to put down the question. No, no, you ought to. I mean, uh, a question... No, that... I, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm just simply yeah. saying, well, the fact is that you're not going to get the same answer from me as somebody else. Yeah. Even among those who are close to me, who are in positions of te teaching positions, we vary. We vary in temperament, personality, worldview. Some are closer, some are further apart. We share certain things, commonalities. We disagree on certain things. You know, it's a living family. Hmm. Yeah. And I don't think, by the way, that the boundaries of the family are strictly Sufism. Yeah, I feel close to Buddhists, to Hindus, to so did Mehmet Selim. He was very close to Kabbalist, a Kabbalistic rabbi, Rabbi Gelman from New York, loved him. Rabbi Zalman Schachter, who was a great Hasidic uh, renewer of Judaism. Uh, he was, he enjoyed being in the company of Hindus. Of Sikhs and of others. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation, interview. Thank you very much.
Is there anything, as I think we're coming now towards the end, is there anything left to say, anything that you'd like to say or that I haven't asked about that you want to make sure we, we mention here before we wrap it up? The only way, if people are interested in being involved in Sufism, the only way to be involved in Sufism is to experience it directly. That's what I want to say. All the reading, as interesting as it is, no. Um, the experience of it itself is what determines Sufism. Sufism is experience, or Sufism is experiential. So, no, I feel like we're just beginning here. We've scratched the surface. Mm. That's too big a subject to contain in, in one interview, interview or even a series of interviews. Yes. Well, perhaps we will have a series then, if you're willing. But <clears throat> I think this has been totally packed full of fascinating information, both historical and scholarly as well as experiential. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.